Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How if the kiss be denied? Then she puts you into entreaty and there begins new matter. <laughs> what of my suit? Not out of your apparel, yet out of your suit. And <laughs> <laughs> not I, your Rosalind. I take some joy to say you are, because I would be talking of her. Well then, in her person, I say I will not have you. Then in mine own person, I die. No, Faith, die by attorney. This poor world is almost six thousand years old, and in all that time, there was not any man died in his own person, vitalicit in a love cause. Troilus had his brains dashed out with a Grecian club, although he did what he could to die before, and he is one of the very patterns of love. Leander would have lived for many a fair year, though Hero had turned none, had it not been for a hot midsummer night. Poor good youth. He went but forth to wash him in the Hellespont, and there, being taken of a cramp, was drowned. <laughs> and the foolish chronicles of that age did find it, hero of Sestos. But these are all lies. Men have died from time to time, and worms have eaten them, but not for love. I would not have my right, Rosalind, of this mind, for I protest her frown might kill me. By this hand it will not kill a fly. Hello and welcome to Act 4 of As You Like It on the plays the thing that was Rosalind and Orlando in scene 2 of Act 4 of As You Like It. I'm Tim McIntosh and I am joined by Heidi White. Heidi, welcome back to the show. Hi Tim, so glad to be here. Um, it's nice to have you back, and we have arrived at Act Four. And dun, dun, dun. Um, Heidi, I like we keep kind of chronicling along the way our adventures with coronavirus. Yes, and so I just think of it as sort of like a time capsule that maybe we can go back and 
when we listen to these episodes, people can say, oh, that was a year ago and everyone's okay now, but everyone was so worried and nobody knew what was going on. I just think that would be kind of enjoyable to have those sort of recordings. Um, how's life with coronavirus for you? We are now in, is this the end of week two of the shutdown? Oh gosh, I have no idea. It feels like week 77. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> And we basically uh, yeah. got three and a half to go, Heidi. Presuming I know, no, it's goes true. The way that we want it to go, we still have three and a half weeks. Oh, it's true. But I definitely feel just right in the tunnel. Um, and that sounds bad. Actually, we're having a great time. I, I, I hate the national crisis. I'm, you know, just like everybody in America, I'm worried about the economy. I'm... Uh, being really careful about our health and we're washing our hands all the time and all that. Uh, but in terms of the time at home, man, we are, yesterday I planted, a, I think, four trays of flower and herb seeds. Wow. Uh, and I learned how to make sourdough bread and I have cinnamon roll dough rising on the counter and Lucy is watercoloring and Jack is composing music. And I mean, we are like full on in the tunnel of, and I, I think tunnel's the wrong word, but I don't know any other word, just in this like sheltered kind of figuring out how to be at home together season, which is sometimes hard and sometimes really delightful. And, um, and, and also we have another four inches of snow, just covered with snow. So here we are. It's the end of days, but somehow I'm just making bread. How's it going in uh, Seattle? Well, I'm shut in. As people know, most people know that listen to this show, I built a little cottage with my friend Andrew on he and his wife's property. They have four kids. They're my god kids. Um, and so I've been effectively really quarantined. I mean, I closed the door to my cottage and I really don't see anybody. The only people that I see are Andrew and Marianne and the kids. Like we went over, I think two nights ago and I, we played spades and ate hamburgers and fries and it was fun. And that's about as much socializing as I've had, gosh, in five days. Mm -hmm. So there's like, this is a little bit concerning. Andrew is going to get a test today because okay. he's worried. Okay. Um, cause he had, he was like having trouble. That's overstating it. He wasn't having trouble breathing, but he was just like, he felt that it was like his lungs were being pressed. So he's going to get a test. So that worries me a little bit. Cause if Andrew has it, I've had a lot of contact with Andrew as much as any contact with anybody. So we'll find out in a couple of days, whether or not he's got it. I, <laughs> Dude, I wow. hope he doesn't have it for his sake, That's for his scary. family's sake, for my sake. Yeah, I know. It is. In Seattle, I think the numbers have dropped this week. Okay. But it's still a hot spot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that it's is like concerning. there's a lot of it here. It is concerning. And how does that impact you? We don't know yet anybody who has it, who's in the circle of people that we yeah. would have been connected to. So yeah. how does that feel to you? Well, I don't know. I think I've got to, I mean, you know, if, if Andrew says he's got it, I think I've got to 
we've got to figure out kind of like what our game plan is. Um, if he's got it, you know, his wife has been heavily exposed. Of course. And, and yeah. I've been pretty exposed. So I think we just got to figure out, okay, what happens if we just got to figure it out? Right. Yeah. I don't really know what that means. Right. You know, am I going grocery shopping for them and, you know, leaving this stuff at the front door? Right. Am I having no contact with them? I don't know. Right. I don't know. Yeah, it is. It's tricky. I, and kind of existential, even though most, you know, most healthy people are not going to be in any danger from this virus. I'm sure with many exceptions to that, but it's still kind of an existential crisis because it's such big news. Yeah. And because it's a pandemic like that. So I think I would be afraid, even though I, I would be more afraid of having the coronavirus because of the big deal that it is in our culture than I would if I just got the cold or even the flu, which I've already had the flu and I wasn't worried at all. And I think that that's kind of an interesting, I've been thinking about that, just the psychological impact of the, um, of the pandemic culture upon the psyche of individuals approaching mm-hmm. this virus. Mm-hmm. Um, so and there's nothing you could do about that. There is something just different feeling about it because of the cultural response to this yeah. pandemic, yeah. Uh, even for people who are not terribly at risk of long-term of, you know, of death or long-term detrimental results and all of that. So um, I find that curious of course, it's perfectly natural. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was wondering. It if you struck felt that. me. We we went for a walk around the neighborhood uh, two nights ago before we were playing spades at the kitchen table, and the neighborhood. It was probably five o'clock that we went for a walk. The neighborhood was completely shut down. We saw two other couples that were out walking. You know, just like one was walking their dog, another couple guys, you know, were like throwing a baseball or something. Otherwise, completely shut down at five o'clock in a busy metropolitan neighborhood in like in a busy, busy city. And the Scrivener's kids went and knocked on a neighbor's door where they're, you know, they have friends at their neighbor's house. And it was remarkable how you can just tell it's the thing that everyone thinks about when they open the door. And everyone is kind of like positioning themselves. Okay, am I six feet away? Oh, I'd love to come out and play. I can't come out and play. You know, and I've thought about, I've not been in a situation like this where a city, or in this case, our whole country and kind of the whole world is centrally preoccupied with one thing so that it's organizing everybody's behavior. I mean, it's kind of, it's remarkable. It's kind of, it's, a, it's like a testament to how like it is a global, we don't live in neighborhoods anymore. We live in this kind of big global universe that we can all be understanding this kind of common threat in a very common way. And my suspicion is even at the height of the bubonic plague, there wasn't that much of a unified kind of approach to what was going on because presumably we just didn't understand it the way that we understand this virus, even though we don't like, right. we don't know how to solve it. Um, that's really struck me. I've been thinking about that a lot. Right. That just, and even, even 
what, 15, 20 years ago, I don't think the response would be as unified because we, don't have a, we didn't have the internet. We had television news, but there wasn't right. kind of like this massive trove of information that people could access right. sometimes for harm, but oftentimes for good. It's just a really different world. It is. It's, it is different. Um, and it's interesting how it's both gathering. It's interesting how it's both gathering people and isolating at the same time. Yeah. Um, just this phenomenon is, I mean, I'm, I'm watching it just spellbound. Um, and, and really, really sad for the impact that it's how, you know, my mom has uh, terminal cancer and she's, mm. um, she's in chemo right now. And, you know, if she, if she catches this virus, it's very unlikely she'll live through it. So it isn't depersonalized for me. This is real mm-hmm. for all of us. You mm-hmm. know, we all know somebody like that, who's, deeply at risk. Um, and so just the, the human cost and the human impact, there's something very redemptive about the quarantine, the potential or potentially redemptive about kind of the gathering together of in homes that, you know, I just keep thinking of that Pascal quote that, you know, most of our problems come from not being able to sit in a room alone for 15 minutes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's really what we're being asked to do is be at yeah. home and be, be alone and quiet, like look right. at yourself, like examine yourself and, and, and live life a little differently, a little less frantically. And there's a lot of potential redemption in that, but there's also a lot of anxiety inherent in that too, as well as there being an actual real threat to human life mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is ravaging society. So um, those two things are equally there, the potential redemptive kind of self-reflective, the potential for prayer um, and for connection in a new way, that's real. And then the threat is also real. Heidi, can I ask how your dad is approaching your mom? Like, you know, they live in the same house. How are they tackling that? Have you talked to him about that? Yeah. I just talked to him the other day and um, yeah, I mean, he's, my dad's got to be really careful when he goes to the grocery store and um, they live, you know, they live alone and um, that's, it's, it's hard. They're both anxious, um, but not living in fear. My parents are mature people. My dad is a very mature man, but he, you know, he's bearing the burden of, of the household and knowing that if my mom is exposed to it, it's, through him, yeah, you know, somehow because he has to go out and go to the grocery store and run errands and get gas right. and, and all the things that people still have to do. Um, so that weighs on him for sure. And he's I bet fearful. It does. Yeah. So anyway, for, and I know that that's true, you know, pray for my family as we're praying for everybody. It gets a uh, this is universal. And as you said, it's pretty rare that a global community faces the same threat at the same time. Like that doesn't happen very often. So it is unique. This is unique yeah. in this generation. So yeah. anyway, thanks for asking and I'll be praying for you. Thanks. You should look into grocery delivery. Do you have yeah. that in Seattle? I'm sure that we do. 
the question is whether or not it's too overloaded, but I would, right. I would, I'll look into that. Yeah. Yeah. Heidi, let's turn our attention to act four of as you like it. We're kind yeah. of, we've rounded the bend and we've hit this act that we've talked about. Um, act four is often for Shakespeare. It's a strange sort of no man's land. Like I always think of act four of Hamlet is oftentimes rarely performed. It's the one where Hamlet goes on the ship to return to England. And it's usually just cut. And if there's something cut in these long plays from Shakespeare, it usually is cut from act four. So we go from a three hour performance down to a more reasonable two hour performance. However, I don't think that's the case for As You Like It. I don't think that Act Four Act Four is is pretty crucial um, yep. in this play. Yes. And it occurred to me as I was reading it, Heidi, that this that As You Like It, um, there are a couple of different themes that have shown up in this play. Boy, but the theme of marriage is seems to me really coming to the fore in the audio that we played. We're listening to Rosalind kind of give a little bit of a, I don't know what you would call it, an anthology of <laughs> these people who have th these famous um, heroes from history and they how they kind of either were afflicted by love or afflicted love itself. And it occurred to me, a lot of this play is about these different characters having different visions of what love and marriage are about. And it, it seems mm. to me that Rosalind and Orlando's vision is kind of the fullest. It's, it's the most, it's like the, the view of marriage that I would want to follow. And I think part of the reason why they have such a full view is because they're not planning to remain in Arden for the rest of their lives. It's clear that they have intentions of returning, like they have responsibilities back in the real world. And I wonder if some of these other characters, they're so content being in Arden. They're so content kind of being in this, this oasis away from the corrupting influence of the city and of the Duke that they maybe have a little bit of a, um, a more adolescent view of marriage. Some of them do. Hmm. Um, hmm. so I, here's what, here's what I see. Um, touchstone kind of sees marriage as like a means of, I don't know, like putting his desire, his girlfriend, fiance hmm. sees marriage as a way of moving up in the world. She's going to kind of like mm. stair step up in society because she marries well. Sylvia's, right. Sylvia's and, and Phoebe, I don't, their view of marriage is sort of like maybe like a slight dull to the pain. Like everything is a, just frustrating for them. And I think Sylvia's, I don't know, Sylvia's seems like he's just a boy who wants to be married. And Phoebe, um, seems like a girl who wants to be in love 
and she's kind of like willing to attach to whoever she finds at the moment. She happens to find that it's Rosalind disguised as a boy for a while. And so she casts her affection for him. So I see all these different characters seeking these different views or espousing these different views of love and the goods that it brings them. Am I right in saying that Orlando and Rosalind's view is the most mature? And the second part of my question is, is it actually healthy or is it just the most mature among immature visions? Oh, I think that's a really good question. And there's probably different takes on that. I, I think it's more, in the first half of the play, it's more the latter, that there's is... Uh, kind of the least ridiculous among uh, more ridiculous options, right? Last time we talked about Sylvia mm-hmm. and Phoebe being a parody of the courtly love tradition, Touchstone and Audrey being a parody of the pastoral love tradition. Uh, and then there's all of these disordered loves within the society, um, the primogenitor problem, the green world versus the corrupt society, that kind of thing. Um, and so Shakespeare is poking fun and then also satirizing various types of disordered loves and Rosalind and Orlando have kind of the best option for the first half of the play. They seem genuinely attracted to each other. Uh, they're, they're especially Rosalind is just purely delightful and Orlando seems like a a pretty good good option. I mean, we talked about how he's not quite worthy of her in the first half of the play. Yeah. Um, but act four, as Shakespeare is wont to do, um, I, I, I see him start starting to tie these threads together to actually form something really lovely. And I think Rosalind and Orlando in this act form a true bond like a real love yeah um and the other couples kind of get paired off and start to instead of being mad at each other or pushed away from each other they're kind of starting to come together but their love isn't at least at this point and maybe ever it isn't less ridiculous it's still kind of silly. Like Sylvius and Phoebe, you can tell they don't have a snowball's chance, right? Like to really <laughs> right. actually be happy, but they're starting to come together. And um, a lo- largely due to Rosalind because she wants to pair people up. She wants people to find love and be happy. And so she kind of puts this harmonizing influence on all these different ridiculous loves. But what I like about Rosalind and Orlando, I'm not sure which direction you want to take the conversation. So I'm going to just throw some things out there. Yeah. Um, is that she is not the one who redeems him. She she has an influence on him and she tells him how to love and how to woo a lady. And, and it's really funny and really sweet and delightful, those scenes. But it is Orlando himself who chooses to rise up to what it means to love somebody through his relationship with his brother. And so um, I it's really interesting how Shakespeare brings all these things together and starts to harmonize the disorder in the play. And a lot of that harmonizing takes place through Rosalind, doesn't it? That's how I see it. Yes. I mean, we talked last time about um, Rosalind as this boundary crossing character. Mm -hmm. She 
She's willing to change her identity. We see from the beginning, Rosalind is willing to change. She's willing to take drastic measures in order to pursue the good. Yeah. You know, she leaves the corrupt society and goes into the green world. She abandons her identity as uh, a woman who can be found and discovered and brought back into subjection by dressing up as Ganymede. She is willing to sublimate her identity as a woman in order to be to educate Orlando on how to love in the guise of Ganymede. So we see that she crosses these rigid social boundaries and her own existential identity for the sake of love. And, and that begins to bring people together. That begins to do its good work on the souls of those around her. For example, Silvius and Phoebe in Act 4, they are, Phoebe falls in love with Ganymede, which is, you know, funny and, and the audience is laughing their heads off and, yeah. It's it's a great addition to the play, just on the plot level. Uh, but underneath, what happens then is that uh, Rosalind teases them, kind of pokes at that their the problems in their relate the disorder in their love, which is this parody of the courtly love tradition in which the man is dying for love of an of a worthy lady and he tries to make himself worthy of her and she spurns him and is cold to him until he shows himself worthy. That's the courtly love tradition. That's what's being mocked here because in every way, Phoebe's unworthy of Sylvia's right. love. Right. And, um, but Rosalind changes that, right? Mm. She, she kind of shames Phoebe into being able to see herself Mm-hmm. And and then turn towards the man who loves her, and she teases Silvius so that he will act like a man mm-hmm. and not a worm and not a yeah. doormat. Yeah. And so and then and then because of that, she exudes this you know this uh, this invitation to love rightly, and then brings them together. And it is her work that does that. So that's just yeah. an example of the influence. What else do you see in Rosalind? Before we leave it, I want to say because we're reading on close reads, we're reading Anne of Green Gables. Hmm. I see Rosalind. There's Rosalind reminds me of Anne. Hmm. She's very different. She's Uh very, very different. She doesn't have to go through that sort of maturation process that provides so much of the joy of Anne of Green Gables. You know, Anne makes these terrible mistakes and is so repentant for them and kind of has to learn from her mistakes. Um, I don't see Rosalind having to make those same sort of mistakes, but both of them have this sort of light felicity that. What a great phrase. And it's disarming. You kind of, you kind of can't help but be, if you're a character in the play, but you have to kind of put down your weapons when Rosalind starts speaking, when Anne starts speaking. And I don't know, I see that kind of similarity between the two of them and their, their effects upon other characters, I think is kind of similar. I, mm. I don't want to make too much out of it because they're very different, but no, that's good. the kind of playfulness that both of them have um, mm. just struck me as really, I, I, it's my favorite aspect of both of their characters. I love no, that's it. That's good. I, I really like that. They both have kind of this merry wisdom to them. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. And they yeah. want what's good for others and are at 
at the expense of themselves. But what I like about Rosalind and Anne is that uh, the play isn't too serious. The play is lighthearted. The book, Anne of Green Gables, is lighthearted. And so even though they encounter real human troubles, the the tone of it kind of lends itself so that these characters can just kind of resolve things through their delightful merry influence on others and right. and it's not this like long journey of the soul <laughs> right it's, right it just is like oh now i'm in love and it's sweet. <laughs> and, That's right. and it works because these characters you're exactly right like both rosalind and Anne, even in the midst of their light-hearted circumstances they're they they have a depth of soul to them that that influences those around them. But the tone is still lighthearted enough that it's right. not, you know, this, like I said, kind of this like odyssey of human discovery. <laughs> it's just fun. We have enough of that in crime and punishment and in COVID. <laughs> That's right. We need both. But That's right. it's nice to have something lighthearted. I think that Rosalind is much more aware of her wisdom. I don't, I don't mean in an um, egotistical way. But I think she kind of has a sense that she has it, whereas I think Anne has no idea. She has no idea that she has this kind of effect on other people. She knows that she, you know, has a rich imagination and that's what her life is supposed to be about. That's what she wants to pursue. But I don't know the kind of um, natural wisdom. I don't think that Anne knows that she has that. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, we see a big change in one of the antagonists of the play in this act. Huh. We see Oliver again. We meet Oliver in the woods. Can you tell yep. us what, um, what happens with Oliver? So just to set it up, Oliver, brother of Orlando, at the top of the play, um, Oliver throws, essentially throws Orlando out. Um, he is withholding the, their father's wealth from Orlando, even though it was due to him in some regard. And so Orlando is not able to achieve gentlemanly status. He's not able to achieve an education. And after Orlando has this fight with the wrestler, he ends up having no choice but to flee into the woods. He's already met Rosalind, so he's already fallen in love with Rosalind at least a little bit. And he meets Rosalind again in Act Three, but we kind of lose track in the play of Oliver until we meet him in Act Four. Tell us what happens, Heidi, with, with Oliver. Well, Orlando uh, has a choice to make. Uh, Oliver is under threat from a lion. Um, and Orlando has the opportunity to choose whether or not he will save him or let his brother be killed by this wild beast, uh, which, you know, many commentators see the wild beast as kind of this aspect of the broken manhood in Oliver. Like he, he has destroyed himself. Like the wild beast is his own animal nature, his own greed, his, uh, and, and Orlando has the opportunity to let Oliver then die or, or to save him. And he chooses to save him. And this is, I think the 
moment in the play that we can look at, we can look and say, oh, Orlando really becomes a man at this point. He, he mm-hmm. becomes worthy of this woman who, who is in every way at this point higher than him, better than him in character. And, um, and he's not a bad man, as we talked about. He's just an ordinary young man, uh, but unworthy of this wonderful woman. And here he lays down his anger, his pride, his, uh, his resentments, and, and saves his brother in a, in a very Christ-like manner. And, and it's this, I really love the fact that Orlando did this without Rosalind. Uh, there is, there's no, she, she doesn't make him do it. Yeah. He does it himself. He's not showing off for her. Yes. And it is his own existential crisis here, his own opportunity to uh, become uh, to give into his animal nature, right? To the law of the forest and um, to let this, this brother who has so wronged him in every way and is actually coming to the forest to murder him. That's why Oliver's coming. Yeah. And um, so this is very melodramatic, but again, within the context of the play, it kind of just feels like another part of this lighthearted comedy. Um, and so I don't, I don't want to make too much of, you know, this, this is where the play gets dark. It really doesn't get dark. It really stays the same tone, but Orlando makes the right choice here. And then being becomes worthy of the, his lady love. Hey, Heidi, I want to point something out about the line, just a little bit of stagecraft from um, Shakespeare. There, there were in London at the time, um, bear baiting was a big spectator event. You know, we think of bear baiting now as sort of like cockfighting and um, dog right. fighting. It's just like, you know, it's a forbidden thing, Inhumane, but apparently it was, class, yeah. yeah. And it was even at the time, but they did it anyway. <laughs> so some of the, some people think that, um, in the winter's tale. So I'm, I'm taking this from the reference to the lion. When I was reading this, I thought, Oh my, there's no way that he like put a live animal on the stage is there. And then I saw like, Oh, okay, good. There's no action scene. So I don't have to like, think about whether or not Shakespeare actually tried that. But some commentators think that in The Winter's Tale, there's this famous stage direction. It's the most famous stage direction in (laughs) Shakespeare, Exit Pursued by a Bear. And some people think that Shakespeare might have put the bear on stage for a little bit, which is, I know, because the thinking is some bears were trained back in the day. And if anybody was going to try it, it would have been Shakespeare. I find that like, implausible Hmm. but it's still kind of i mean i'm just thinking about a bear even a trained bear on a pardon the pun bear stage in front of spectators (laughs) i just think the risk is so great that even the spectacle of it couldn't overwhelm the kind of insurance risk that 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 would pose oh man i hope it's true though that's oh i would love it to be true it'd be so it'd be so fun another aspect of the mystique um but anyway, I just thought about this this lion scene when I thought that like maybe we were going to see something on something spectacular on stage that made me think of that. Um, do you see? Did you see like a little glimpse of something between Oliver and Celia? Yeah, yeah. 
I, I mean, like, it kind of has to happen, doesn't it, Heidi? Doesn't yeah. I mean, Celia has been unpaired this whole time. Right. And I, I love that about Shakespeare is he always gives people second chances, right? So um, an opportunity to repent and to change. And um, that, I, I think, especially in the comedies, he's just really um, kind to his characters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not all of them. There's plenty of exceptions to that. Uh, but in this particular instance, you do see a little spark. And you've been wondering about Celia, right? She's pretty. She's uh, she's merry. She's sweet. You know, right. Who's she going to end up with? Right. Because um, especially particularly with women, it seems Shakespeare pretty much marries off all of his young women. Some A lot of the time, there's a leftover guy. Yeah, you know, and we talked about that you and I before on the yeah. show. Kind of a uh, some a, a lonely outsider to the marriage who kind of reminds us that life is still tragic and a veil of tears. But there's some, but generally yeah. with the young women, they get married off. And so here we see, oh, Oliver and Celia. Wouldn't that be great if Oliver was a good guy? Because then they could all share the wealth and be together and be a little yes. community, and that'd be darling. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I've got my fingers crossed, mm-hmm. which brings us to our segue out of the show. What I'm going to be looking for in Act 5 is really simple. I'm going to look for whether or not Oliver and Celia end up together. I'm going to be looking for other things, but that's one of the main things that I'm going to be looking for. What are you going to be looking for, Heidi? Well, you know, I'm just always interested in these outsider characters, so I just always have my eye on Jacquees. Yeah, what's going to happen with Jacquees? He, his vision of marriage is that it's just kind of, and maybe love, is it's just sort of an absurd pastime maybe like he has, he holds it in the same sort of regard. He does his fellow man. It's we're absurd pastimes. Yes. And, and is that going to stick through the end of the play or is there some off chance that he meets someone? What's your bet, Heidi? What's your bet about what happens with Jacquees? I bet he stays the same. He seems pretty static, but yeah. I'm I'm curious if there's any kind of I I think with you know and we, we spent quite a lot of time talking about Jacquees and Rosalind roundly puts him in his place in scene one of act four and, and it's an interesting conversation. She rebukes him for his melancholy and and he responds, and there, he just always has this kind of whiny tone instead of this tragic dignity that some of the other outsider characters have in the comedies. He just kind of seems whiny and ridiculous the whole time. So I'm watching, just watching that, if there's any kind of dignity that's bestowed upon him or whether he nice. remains the same. Great. That's a great thing to look for. So our next recording will be the closing episode, Act 5 of As You Like It. Um, remember that you guys can join the conversation, listeners, online through Facebook, through the Close Reads discussion group, which Heidi continues to grow and kind of like have momentum as this place that people like ask everything about books to recipes to child rearing ideas it's i'd love to check in on it and just see what new conversation has bubbled up and i i I love it because it seems like it's this place where the conversation is so dignified Mm. and everyone has kind of like learned that 
to kind of trust the kind of co-conversationalist on this Facebook page, I just find it delightful. Yeah, It's got to be the most respectful space in the entire, you know, interworld. Yes. I, it is just wonderful. Like that, that I love the conversations and I, and I learn so much, like I gain so much insight, which is why, I mean, we do what we do, right, Tim? Like yeah. that, that we, we love reading in community and it's not just a community between the contributors on the podcast. It's a community with these other incredibly insightful people who see things I don't see and Absolutely. I learn from and yeah. remind us of details from the books and add their own thoughts and, you know, argue with us at times, which just creates a conversation. I, I love it. It's wonderful. So any listeners, please, we want to hear from you. Uh, and, uh, and since we're releasing this particular uh, play, on this podcast, on the Plays the Thing podcast, in a batch, I'm curious, yeah. I'm hoping that readers will or, and listeners, excuse me, will still contribute their thoughts uh, to you and I, and just tag us and tell us it's about the Plays the Thing. I guess would that work? Yeah, yeah. We're gonna we've got to figure out whether or not we can accumulate enough questions because people will not have been listening along with us. Mm-hmm. So we'll have a plan for that, and we'll tell everybody about that in the next episode, Heidi, you and I need to talk about that off the air. Right. So meanwhile, you can follow the close reads discussion group, or in this case, the, um, plays the thing discussion group is kind of patched into that on Instagram and on Twitter at close reads pods. And you can also uh, get our email by writing close reads podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at close reads.substack.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Next week, Act 5 of As You Like It. For Heidi White, I am Tim McIntosh for The Plays The Thing. Thank you, and happy listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.